This is CliffCentral.com. Welcome to the Understanding Cancer Podcast, a series of key conversations that bring together all you need to know about cancer, empowering you with information and knowledge. This 10 podcast series is brought to you by Discovery. My name is Sonia Booth. Each week we chat to some of the country's foremost experts in the fields of health and wellness for cancer prevention, as well as in cancer treatment. We are bringing you fascinating insights relevant to every person out there. In our third episode, we focus on cancers that affect women. Today, I am in conversation with specialist breast surgeon, Professor Carol Benn, and gynecologist, Dr. Trudis Smith. Thank you for having us. Thank you for being here. It's a pleasure. So now, th- th- there's no doubt that screening and prevention would be first price in the race against cancer, and they should be considered as uh, powerful tools in the fight against cancer. Sure, absolutely. I think pe- people must also realize that we trot out risk factors at medical school, and whereas there's certain risk factors that Trudy can talk about, for a lot of people who get cancer, they've done absolutely nothing wrong. So random genetic events, in fact, 60 to 70% of all breast cancers happen to people with no risk factors whatsoever. So that's why we encourage that everyone's at risk and you should go for your screening. And I think truths. Yeah, and from a gynecological perspective, particularly cervical cancer, it's a 100% preventable disease. Okay. And, you know, all of us are at risk. It doesn't, um, uh, you know, so many of us think only dodgy people get uh, cervical cancer, but that's not true. We're all at risk and we need to, prevention is better than cure. I'm glad you said that because there is a perception out there that, you know, uh, promiscuity, for yeah. example, leads to that. I said to Shah, his emergency medicine specialist, my husband, um, you know, married women are at more risk of STDs than single women today. And he was like, what are you trying to tell me? You know, but the fact of the matter is we conceptualize who's at risk and who's not at risk. And I think we must just like, like we don't do titles, get off the pedestal, go out there, check yourself, know your body, know what you should screen for and don't do the ostrich head in the sand. Yeah, I mean, we're not advocating an unhealthy lifestyle and, you know, that just my risk is the same, so I'm going to be unhealthy. Of course, you have to have a a healthy sexual health, a healthy lifestyle as well. But, um, you know, don't think that just because you run every day, your BMI is good and you have one partner that you're immune. Yeah, well, we do know about risk factors that exercise decreases risks of cancer by 42%. And like Trudy says, you want to keep your BMI down because obesity is not a good thing, particularly for any cancers, both from a risk and from a treatment point of view. And of course, we're saying don't smoke. And of course, we're saying um, watch your alcohol intake because it's been significantly linked Two breast cancerous impact more so than HRT, isn't that right? Absolutely, as is obesity. Yes. I mean, obesity is a huge issue from a breast cancer link. And uh, obviously, uh, cervical cancer is um, 
smoking is a, a big problem for us from a cervical cancer perspective. I don't know that. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm also on an, on an education here. If you, if you have a look at smoking and the risk for cancer with smoking, it's not just lung cancer. It's genital yeah. tract cancers. So, for instance, bladder cancer is more common in smokers. Cervical cancer is more common in head smokers. And head and neck yeah. things. So what smoking does is it paralyzes immune cells so they can't go and fight against human papilloma. Virus. And if they can't fight against human papillomavirus, you can't clear it from your body yourself. And those are the vi- that virus causes cancer. So, Trudy, talking about human papillomavirus, because I mean, I've had, we've had our kids vaccinated. I mean, I was at ASCO and it won the award of the top oncology thing in the world. And I was fascinated in the US, so few people vaccinate as opposed to, say, Australia. What is the story about who should vaccinate from a prevention point of view? Certainly, I mean, if you look at Australia, you can't go to school if you're not vaccinated. Amazing. um, Against cervical cancer. I mean, cervical cancer, and it's not just a vaccine for cervical cancer. It prevents head and neck cancers. It prevents penile cancers, anal cancers, and cervical cancer. And you can vaccinate your daughter and your son's against these cancers. You know, and I say to moms, if there's a breast cancer vaccine, you'd all be rushing out there and giving it to your daughters. But why won't you give your daughters the cervical cancer vaccine? It's First of all, you know, the cervix is in the vagina. And as soon as you say the word vagina, you know, vaginas are like scary things. We don't talk about Deep dark holes. Yeah. (laughs) So why? You know, it is... It really, there's so much anti-vaccine lobbyists in the world. It's crazy. It's crazy. You should vaccine, vaccinate for everything. And, and I think what Trudy says is so important. If you can vaccinate for something, absolutely do. And I would advocate you vaccinate boys and girls. I mean, we're in an era, thank God, where we're not into this concept of, um, our little princess Barbie is going to grow up and marry her prince and have a happy life. We accept um, um, relationships in terms of people have a right to choose who their partners are, their multiple cho- partners, etc. And I think particularly for that reason, for me, it's not just about um, vaccinating girls, it's vaccinating girls and boys. Absolutely. And I actually think if you talk about numbers, I think cervical cancer is actually way more common in terms of in this country as an incident than breast cancer. But because our cancer registries are based on pathology, in other words, you need to present to a hospital with a lump in your breast and they do a biopsy and they say breast cancer and therefore we say this is the number of breast cancers in this country. Um, people who die out there in the communities with their breast lumps or more commonly with their cervical cancers who've never presented to any hospital are not recorded as a cancer registry incidence. And I think because gynae screening is done so less well, particularly in a government setting, than breasts, because your breasts are out there. So eventually you're going to notice if there's like a big lump or an ulcer coming through your breasts. 
Clearly, I'd like it if we picked up breast lumps sooner, which is why we advocate examine your breast once a month and check, and it's your body, and if it doesn't look the same that it did last night, go to a doctor and, you know, have no eyes on your fingers. So don't accept the doctor who says, well, this is just a lump or this is just hormones. But the problem is it's very, very hard for most people to examine their cervix, okay? Mm. And... Yeah, and and so many women um, unfortunately don't have access to screening, yeah. and that is a big problem. And you know, when um, out in the communities, if you start leaking urine and stool, and you're bleeding and you're smelly, you'll get ostracized, and yeah. nobody will make that diagnosis. And so there are more deaths from cervical cancer than there are from breast cancer because the cervix is so close to the kidneys, to the kidney pipe called the ureter and it often blocks it off and you die of kidney failure. So, you know, there are far more deaths from cervical cancer than breast cancer, a preventable disease. I've lost count of the number of times you've mentioned the word screening because early detection is key, right? But I think what we must realize is screening doesn't have to be expensive, okay? you got to pair of hands, you check your breast once a month and ideally if you find something wrong you must come forward and have an ultrasound no matter what age you are and a mammogram and ultrasound and needle biopsy but I think, I mean, there are all sorts of fascinating new breakthroughs from a gynae point of view so Trudy can give us some ideas of what we should screen for from so, gynae Certainly from an ovarian cancer perspective, luckily, thank God ovarian cancer is very rare it actually is very rare but Unfortunately, it's found very late because there are not good screening modalities. So you can't really screen for ovarian cancer. We have certain high-risk populations, people who have a genetic cancer, you know, yeah. BRCA genes, Angelina Jolie. Yeah. She has a BRCA gene. It's a genetic um, cancer. And those are a special group of women. And those women, you, you, do, um, you can screen until they've completed their families. And then you can open the discussion as to whether you should be removing the ovaries, etc. But remember, ovaries are important things. Ovaries supply us with all our hormones. They give us our libido and they do far more than what we really know about. So ovarian cancer is tough. But now we're moving towards cervical cancer screening. We're moving towards human papillomavirus screening. And that's going to be where the change will be from pap smear to HPV testing. And what are those things that um, where you just put this tampon inside for an hour and then you can so we have for, we have a worry of self testing yeah, in uh, yeah. so you can do self HPV yeah. testing. The biggest problem with self testing is you need to have the knowledge uh, yourself on what it means okay. because so many women think the the test comes back high risk positive and for them they've already got the cancer. Okay. So you have to be a little bit cautious on self testing, but yes, you can. There are tests that are yeah. uh, self testing HPV tests. So next year when you do my pap smear, you must do my HPV as well. Yeah. So you know the the question is economics. So the new South African guidelines say we do not do pap smears, we only HPV test preferably every five years, it'll increase our interval. And if you have a high-risk HPV, then we triage or we move you to other levels in the screening process. But if you are HPV negative and you keep the same partner, you're unlikely to change in the next five years. Okay, so tell me something. If somebody of any age is HPV 
positive, any age, would you vaccinate them? So um, the, the, the likelihood of you containing a high-risk HPV the younger you are, I mean, I'm not saying that we don't as older women so get enough us, we're action. Old. <laughs> <laughs> but the the younger you are, the more likely you are to have a high risk HPV, but the much more likely you are to get rid of it yourself, your body's immunity. So we don't like to HPV test very young sexually active women. So that test should probably only be done after the age of 25 or 30. But in terms of vaccination, if you have the virus, the vaccine is not going to get rid of it. But remember, the vaccine contains other HPV types. So to say, oh, somebody who's sexually active can't be vaccinated is not true. Okay. That is not true. And someone who tests positive? So if you test positive and you vaccinate, you're not going to get rid of that HPV. Yeah. But what you can do um, is prevent further reinfection okay. for later. Okay. All right. Okay. So, I mean, the, 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 the stats I'm about to read are absolutely shocking, but I can't say I'm surprised and I'll tell you why. Yeah. I mean, only 25% of women yeah. with access to private health care get screened. Yeah. Yet they are eligible. Firstly, I think that people are scared to screen. Okay, it's that head in the sand mentality. And what amazes me is the amount of ladies I see who go, I can't believe it, I went for my mammogram and they found a cancer. It's like, because I think also as health educators, we don't educate people that screening is not a Disney walk in the park. It's not Disney World. If you look, there's a good chance you're going to find and you need to be counseled about absolutely, we want to pick up things early. Most things we can manage. Some things that we screen for, actually, you pick up a tiny breast cancer that's a triple negative breast cancer. Even though it's tiny, you're still going to need chemo. And that's quite a horrific thought for people to deal with. So people have to be well counseled. And that's where I think podcasts like this are so important. Where you go for your screening. I saw a lady last night who goes for routine screening and they've missed the cancer for the last five years. So what was the point of her screening? So you must go to multidisciplinary units and people who specialize in, you know, when you're looking in the game park, the game range is more likely to see the predator than Carol sitting on the back of the vehicle. So that's the point. And for me, I think what's important is the mother-daughter principle. So if your mother went for screening, your daughter is more likely to go for screening because it's like a natural progression. You know, it's like if you use tampons, your daughter's more likely to use tampons. So the mother-daughter principle is very, very important. Unfortunately, those 25% of women who are being screened are probably the women who don't need to be screened. And that's why you'll come up with the statistics to say, oh, you've screened so many women and this is the number that were positive because those women will come back and back and back and back for their screening. Whereas we need to be educating women out there that, you know, whether you have an HPV test or a pap smear, it's not so bad. You know, I when I get my first young girl, she walks in the rooms, the eyes are bigger sources and, you know, you explain that you're going to put this thing in the vagina and you're going to have a look. It's like somebody's looking in my vagina. But once they've done it, they go, oh, that wasn't so bad. Like, what was everybody talking about? Do you you understand? So I think education is key. It really is key. I mean, education is key to health, isn't it? And stop having these behind-the-closed, non-discussion doors. I mean, in my house, 
everything is out there such that my daughter actually says, Mom, you know, this is a very conservative family. Don't mention to this child because I'll go in there and listen to them talking about boys and this and I'll, I have two rules. Okay. Condoms. If he doesn't know where he's going, give him directions. Okay. Number three is if he, if it wasn't good the first time, they're not allowed back. And number four is if you don't want to discuss it with your parents, have an adult that you can speak to about it. Because they often don't want to talk to mom or dad or this or that. And if we're having these conversations with kids, we need to translate it also to adult women. To that, if you are uncomfortable about speaking to someone about how to examine your breasts, find someone that you can have that discussion with. A GP, a doctor, specialist. If you are scared that your mammogram is going to cause cancer, that's rubbish because there's more radiation <laughs> on an aeroplane Absolutely. than there is going for a mammogram, okay? Stop with this nonsense, okay? It doesn't cause cancers, okay? And it doesn't have to be a painful experience, like what Trudy was saying with the pap smear. Now, I mean, survival rates, you mentioned that there aren't that many cases of ovarian cancer, right? So what are, what are the survival rates for breast cancer and cervical cancer? So cervical cancer, if caught early, remember the reason you have a pap smear is not to find the cancer. The reason you have a pap smear is to find a precancerous condition. So we're very lucky, unlike breast, in that cervical cancer, you can find a precancerous condition. It is not a cancer. And you treat it by removing those abnormal cells and you prevent a cancer. And thank goodness there's a time span. So um, we've got time. So if you pick up an abnormality, you can treat it and prevent the cancer. But once you get the cancer, obviously, the earlier, the better. So an early cancer can be treated with a good cure rate, excellent cure rate. The later a cancer, but that's with all cancers. Yeah. The same goes with breast yeah. cancer. So in the old days with breast, we used to be ageist. We used to say the bigger the cancer, the worse it is. And then we became ageist, which worried me as I got older. Young people have worse cancers than old people's. Young people get chemo, old people don't. Now we realize that there are four really biological, behavioral types, personalities of breast cancer. Extremely lazy breast cancers that usually don't need chemotherapy and we treat them mainly with hormonal manipulation. A group that's hormone sensitive, that's got its tackies on that we use a combination. A cancer that's got a target in the middle, it's like Puckman from the old days that we use special target treatments, septin. And then a fourth group called the triple negatives that the mainstays we give oncology treatment, okay, and and always I say surgery is for blondes. You just need to take the cancer out. It's not better to take a breast off than take a cancer out. You must just take the cancer out properly. So obviously you don't want to leave it behind. And then we've got local treatment radiation. But today no one needs ugly ablative surgery and there's no such thing as an emergency mastectomy. Chop it off and chop it out as quickly as possible. No one died of cancer in the breast, ever. You die of cancer's ability to spread. You must understand its behavior. And once you know its behavior, you sit in a big group of multidisciplinary, clever people, and you plan a treatment individual to that person. And particularly with youngsters and breast cancer, if they haven't had kids and family, 
you must get gynae involvement and discussions around fertility and egg saving and all those issues. And I'm sure that's the same with gynae cancer. Absolutely. You know, cervical cancer is devastating from a fertility perspective. But there are lots of alternatives and discussions, yeah. uh, particularly, unfortunately, available only to the private sector as opposed to yeah. the public sector because we don't have that. We only have two infertility units in the public sector, and those are um, they're basically they're not funded. Um, so that is an issue, but there are alternatives. You know, you can freeze eggs, freeze embryos, get a surrogate. Yeah. There, there are lots of alternatives. And, and Trudy, earlier on you mentioned Angelina Jolie. I mean, she lost her mother, grandmother, and aunt to cancer. So now I'm, I bring that up because I would love for you to enlighten me on genetics and particularly gene mutations. So, um, you know, we can both talk to this, but there are definitely family lines of breast and ovarian and um, uterine prostate cancer. So it's not just in women. You have to take a male history and a female history. And uh, there's a, an Afrikaans line. There's an Ashkenazi Jewish line. There's a Welsh line. There's a Scottish line. So you take a nice family history. And that's what we both do when we yeah. see a cancer patient. You know, anybody else in your family have a cancer, both males and females. And then there are certain characteristics of the cancers. Then we would alert us and then we would do genetic testing within the family. It's easier to genetically test the cancer survivor than somebody who doesn't have cancer because then you can isolate the genes. So it's called the index case. So I'm actually, um, her geneticist is actually a friend of mine. So I did the Angelina Jolie stuff. And um, so the fact of the matter is under 10% are BRCA positive. So if you take 100 cancers, under 10%. So 20 to 30 are, are, are a bit like opening a lock. You have uncle has colon, this has prostate, this is this, etc. And you have a, a lock effect of all the different genes together that cause, for, say, for example, a breast cancer. But what it is, is if people have strong family histories, what Trudy says is very important. You test the index case, the person with the cancer. Because let's say, for example, my mom had breast cancer and died, and then I test and I'm BRCA negative, I don't know if she wasn't BRCA negative and then the testers doesn't mean anything on me. So you want young cancers and you want to test and if they're positive, then you test all the rest of the family have opportunity to test. What I want to stress is I often see families where this is an absolute I mean, it's worse than a divorce in terms of so-and-so, I've tested, I'm positive, I'm worried about my kids, what if I've given this to my kids, what if, what if, what if. The fact of the matter is you have the genes you're born with. End of story. All you have is you've acquired more information and it's how you deal with it. So firstly, you don't ever test children. People need to be over the age of 18 and they need to sign consent for it. So say as a mom, you know you are BRCA positive. Okay. Firstly, you have a choice whether you want to disclose that to your kids or not. It's your right. Okay. 
if you choose to disclose it to your kids, I think you should disclose it to a doctor. So should something happen to you, the doctor has an opportunity if the family asks to say and go through it. But for example, I could refuse to let anyone in my family know and that's my right. Okay. Then if you let your kids know, they have a right. So I have families where the 19-year-old refuses to test and the 22-year-old wants to test. Or the two sisters have tested and the one's positive and the other's negative. Let's just put it out there. I'm treating three men with breast cancer at the moment. Okay, BRCA2 is associated with male breast cancer. So if there's male breast cancer in the family, those men must be tested. Okay, it doesn't change their treatment Okay, at all. Okay, but it's of value for their kids and their family. From our perspective, obviously, there's a lot of um, psychological yes. burden because the negative pa- the negative family member feels guilty yeah. that there's a positive family member. It has many um, psychosocial implications. You know, it has implications on health care. It has implications on insurance, etc. So we do have to be wary. But it does make a big difference to ovarian cancer survivors. So in ovarian cancers, which are BRCA gene cancer, Cancers, we can use an extra chemotherapeutic yeah. agent, which imparts better survival. So for us, it is important uh, in terms of the management of the ovarian cancer BRCA patient. So it's really a difficult subject, but I think it's a discussion you need to have with somebody when you um, see that there are a lot of family members, some of which are very young. You need to open that discussion with them about have you thought about genetic testing. So the Angelina Jolie gene is not the only one. There are many others um, that have got very long names that are also genetic (laughs) cancers. And I think, Trudy, for me, what's interesting is so it's the same with breast. So if you BRCA positive and a triple negative, we, there are other drugs that we can use in the treatment um, regime. But what I find fascinating is the whole concept around risk reducing and risk reducing surgery. So I always say 20% of people, only 20% who have strong family history and BRCA positive undergo risk reducing surgery for the breast. Okay. And today we do nipple and skin sparing, okay? So, and it's not like buying jeans at Woolworths. You can't take it back. So it's not something you rush into. But what is, in fact, more important for me is the issue about taking out ovaries. Because you mentioned early how important the ovaries are. And I often say, we're quick to turn around to people and say, whip out this and whip out that. But you take a youngster and you take out their ovaries more women die at the age of 50 of heart disease, okay, mm. than cancers. And you've got to be so careful. The conversation is not just about whip out and prevent. So I will never forget a, a 33-year-old who came in, strong family history, BRCA positive, life and soul of the party, breast tissue out, beautiful Barbie boobs, ovaries out, etc. I get a WhatsApp as I'm driving to say, please come to her wake died at 39 of a myocardial infarct. So here's a youngster who's done everything right to prevent what she thought she would have her highest, from a demise point of view, yet died of a heart attack. So I think these are, it's not a simple um, story. No, it's 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 a, a complex conversation that you need to have because, you know, we must appreciate that in a young, I mean, I have a very young patient. You, I've removed her ovaries. She's had her breast done. We had that conversation. But now your libido's bad. 
you know, what it does to one's libido is, is quite uh, horrific. And it's a conversation you yeah. need to have. And, you know, you now have a dry vagina. You are um, not feeling sexually attractive. Your libido is bad. So, yeah, it's not easy. They're really not simple discussions. No. I can't imagine. I mean, I, I actually don't even want to be in your position. So now I, I've done the screening and yeah. the tests. Now yeah. comes the diagnosis. Yeah. How do you then give me the hard facts without killing my spirits? I okay. mean, I know you, Carol, have a holistic approach to this. Well, I think we both do. But I think, uh, you know, I discussed in my MDM today, I was actually like quite out there with the oncologist, the concept of medical EQ. Is something that fascinates me. So I have a youngster who is diagnosed with a breast cancer. We do an MRI. We check the glands. The glands are positive. She's going to start chemotherapy. She goes to see the oncologist. The oncologist gives her, well, you're going to need chemo. You're then going to have your breast off. You're then going to need radiation. You're then going to need 10 years of this. I'm like, guys, you know what? I battle to run my 10Ks. I can dream of doing a 15 or 21. Never remotely. The thought of a comrade scares the living daylights out of me. If you have got somebody who's going through stress and a crisis, now I've got a son who's an insulin-dependent diabetic. I remember sitting in a consult, and I might have all the medical knowledge in the world thinking, what are they saying? You are anxious, you're stressed, you're taking less than 20% of the doctors, small bites. Small bites mm-hmm. to go through the journey. When you're climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, you're not going to go, this is what it is, up, this is what it is, down. You're going to do this in small bites. So I think it's important that people have information, that they have navigation, people to help them through the journey, and that we go over things in little bits. Okay, Nine out of ten people with breast cancer today are alive and well. Okay, 10 years down the line. Yes, cancers come back. Yes, people die of cancers. Okay, but life is about managing. I always say we're all in survivorship from one day to the next. Okay, when you talk about am I a survivor? We're survivors. All of us. Okay, and the fact of the matter is you each take one day at a time. Okay, you can't plan it. Of course, you mustn't be stupid. Okay, to have long-term sensible plans. It's sensible one step at a time. Obviously, no lies. Explain the diagnosis. Guide people through. Understand that it's their bodies, not yours. Okay? People have a right to choice. And there's choice. There's choice. And I think that's key. Yeah. Yeah. Choice is key. They can choose who to look after them. Yeah. Uh, you know, but I think the most important thing is not to lie. You, you have to be upfront and as Carol says, small and a multidisciplinary team is, yeah. is really critical. And second opinion, you know, I would say doctors should leave their medical ego at the door. You know, I have no problem if people go for second opinions and if they go to someone else, hey, thank God. Okay. Then they weren't meant to be with me, but go for a second opinion and I always say when people come see me for a second opinion, I say, I don't want to hear what anyone else has said because a true opinion, particularly I have a problem with it in private, has to be unbiased, unbiased. It means I don't want to know what Trudy said. I want to tell you what I think. And you can say that nutty blonde, not interested. Mm -hmm. So that's the point, you know, and you go over it, you give them options, you give them content, you give them small bites of information. It's not little shop of horrors. It's not a ruptured aneurysm. Either breast cancer, cervix, or ovary. There are very few, more on Trudy's side than mine, that require an emergency 
intervention. So people have time to digest a diagnosis, hear what options are available, okay, go little bit by little bit, and then plan a treatment. And each treatment pathway is different for every person. It's not a recipe today. Cancer treatment is not a recipe. It was 10, 15 years ago. But there's so many different drugs available. There's so many different options. There's so many different surgical and reconstructive choices. People have time and choice and option. But I think what also is key to time, choice and option is to be wary of charlatan options. Oh, absolutely. You know, and to be wary of, you know, we practice evidence-based medicine within a multidisciplinary team. And we do that because we have evidence that this and this and this will work or this, this and that will work. But, you know, what Mary Jane said on Facebook is what we call level five evidence. It's not what's going Absolutely. You know, you need to make sure you go to a credible site with good evidence and then make your choices. And anyone who's going to offer you the cure for cancer is lying because you know what? There's no cure for life. Okay. So the fact of the matter is when I see people saying, this herb, 100% cure. Believe me, if someone knew the cause and the cure, some very clever businessman would have bought it, sold it, packaged it, and we'd all be buying it. Okay, so there isn't any because it's not one thing that causes cancer. It's some multivariate things, and it's not one way to treat it. Okay, and you know what? Sometimes life is hard. And sometimes treatments are difficult. So anyone who's going to give you, if you sprinkle a little something on your nose and it's side effect free, okay, life is not side effect free. Absolutely. And there's not one thing that will fix 40,000 cancers. Yeah. So, you know, we, we have patients who'll come and I'm taking this little bit of herb and, you know, you know, when you see that sign up that says, um, see Dr. So-and-so, he's going to cure impotence, cancer, diabetes, uh, all the rest. It doesn't work that way. I can never find Each person, him. I can't find him. Each person is individual. Each treatment plan is individual. And each treatment plan has evidence base to it. And I mean, I, th- I think it's, it's sad that, you know, when you, when you told, um, or your specialist breaks the news yeah. about you having breast cancer, or ovarian cancer, more often than not, you're so desperate that you'll go out there seeking information sure. and trying all sorts of sure. cures, as you said, that sure. you know people do think that there is easy. a cure out there. I always say to my kids, if it's easy, okay, it's probably okay, not worth it. And I mean, we're talking information overload. And on that yeah. topic, I know that you have a love-hate relationship with Google. Yeah. And I'm not sure if I want to share the coffee mug that apparently all the doctors have that don't confuse my medical degree with Google. So I think everyone, it's natural. I mean, I do it. I sit in a management meeting at the university, which is boring as hell, and I get an eyebrow twitch. So I Google eyebrow twitch, and then I WhatsApp Charles and say, my God, I need a brain scan. And he says, you're in a management meeting. Focus. Okay. So the fact of the matter is we all do it. But remember when you're going onto the internet, you're hitting on what is the common hit thing. So what is the first thing people are going to look at? Survival. And then you pick up something from 1995 or something that says 50% survival on inflammatory breast cancer, when actually today it's closer to 75, 80%, and it's not 
everything fits all the same thing. So I'm very fussy in terms of I write blondly and I give lots of handouts and I tell people where are reputable sites to go because it's natural. This, the internet, the cell phones is part of our life today. But I think you've got to have the conversation with your doctor about where you're searching for and where you're looking and so that they can guide you in terms of what you're doing. I think we've got to be, we've got to encourage, like I mentioned, honest relationships, parents and kids and families, honest relationships with where we're accessing information on the internet. Absolutely. And I mean, remember that uh, from a Google perspective, you can pay to be at the top of Google, um, yeah. uh, Google advertising, for yes. instance. So you need to empower your patients like with Wiki, what are good, si- good, yeah. uh, good sites to go to. And there are lots of good yeah. sites to go to. They really are where lay people can read. So you can get the technical stuff. So I often empower my, there's a, a, a lovely medical thing that we belong to. It's called Up to Date. Mm. And Up to Date has patient information. So we can send patient information to yeah. patient from Up to Date. And that will give you the most up to date scientific information that there is out there. The top three mostly searched questions on Google, which is where you come in. Is chemotherapy always necessary for breast cancer? Number one. Can you treat breast cancer without surgery? Number two. How common is breast cancer before 40? Okay. So let's go through all those. So no, not all breast cancers need chemotherapy. In fact, less and less today. In fact, the lead breaking abstract this year at ASCO was around genetic profiling on um, luminal bees. That's nodes negative hormone sensitive breast cancers. And it showed that it was an inferiority equal trial, which means in simple terms that Having chemo is not necessary in all people with hormone-sensitive breast cancers. That's the simple way of looking at it. That's, that's number one. Okay. See, this is like my Alzheimer's moment. You have to watch. Okay, so the second question, in fact, I'm going to actually go to the third one. Is breast cancer common in people under 40? Not that common, but yes, it is common. So in other words, if you land up with a breast mass, okay, you mustn't assume it's not a cancer. Most lumps are not cancers. Most lumps in young girls are things like fibroadenomas. But the problem is, is we don't have eyes on our fingers, which means that if you feel a lump, so I've just diagnosed breast cancer in a 26-year-old, and it's a story of someone saw something and cut it out. Really, that's not how we treat breast cancers. So what you want to do is you want to do the sonar, do the needle biopsy, work out what cancer it is, and then manage it from there. Okay. For Carol, the second yeah. question is, do all yeah. breasts, uh, the second question was, yeah. do all breasts need surgery? Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, not everything no. needs a knife. No. So I have a whole bunch of little old ladies who are, I mean, Alzheimer's and this and that and small lady cancers and I just put them on tamoxifen and they're never going to die of their breast cancer. There's a very nice trial at the moment that I'm trying to get into called the frost trial where cryosurgery again, where these little lazy cancers, we can possibly freeze them. So I think it's having that multidisciplinary discussion because there's a whole new field in surgery called ERIS, which is enhanced recovery after mm-hmm. surgery. And I think you, you mustn't forget that surgery is um, 
an assault. Not that chemotherapy and radiation isn't as well, but that's why you've got to go through a sensible approach. The first rule of medicine is do no further harm. You've got to assess the patient. I mean, I've just seen a lady with metastatic ovarian cancer and a new breast cancer, and she's had three cardiac stents, and they want to take her breast off. Why? Just put on tamoxifen, and the issue is not the breast, it's the ovarian. So so many people will say, can't you cut it out? I can cut anything out. The question is, should, should I? I be? Yeah. And, you know, the you don't. Surgery, you know, I, there was a very old uh, professor, Harry Seftel, <laughs> And Harry Seftel always said you should earn your surgery. Absolutely. And you should earn surgery. Surgery has complications. Surgery has consequences. So it must be the right decision. And I mean, we've been talking breast cancer a lot. I mean, it is a life-changing experience. Take me through to how you deal with your patients, um, you know, regarding the emotional roller coaster that I might be experiencing, you know, low self-esteem, I'm fragile. Well, I think the thing is you bring up a whole lot of important issues and issues that actually even concern Trudy a lot here. The fact of the matter, each person is different. They have different relationships with their partner and different relationships with their breasts. So mm. Some people are not really breast invested. They're like, yeah, okay. So, and never mind their breasts, the concept of losing hair for a lot of women is a lot worse than the concept of what we're doing to their breasts. So each person is going to have a different journey and you have to be aware of it, cognizant of it, and also how it's going to affect not just them, their partner, but their children. Subsequent to the treatment, the active treatment aspect, we often put a lot of ladies onto endocrine manipulative treatments. And I say that in a broad sense, because people are under the misconception that they're anti-hormones. Some of them are actually not anti-hormones. Like some of them, the side effects are related to estrogen-positive hormones. Okay, But to take a 27-year-old and put her into menopause brings up all the issues that Trudy was talking about. So it is a combined approach because I can... Put someone through all their cancer treatment, give them the most beautiful boobs, okay? Put them into menopause and they have a miserable existence going forward. Absolutely. And that's from a Trudy side point of view where we need to manage it. You know, it becomes, I think what we need to really ascertain in life is life is not just about quantity. Yes. It's about quality. Yeah. And so you need to take cognizance together with your patient on what their quality is going to be as well as their quantity. So the same goes back to the surgical procedure. I can do a massive 10-hour operation, but if that patient's going to remain in hospital for four months afterwards yeah. and demise within six, why? Mm. Why would you do that? It's about quality. It's about having that discussion. And also trying to encourage your patient to have the discussion with their partners. Many will want to close it off, not tell their children, not tell their partners and keep that hidden. And I think it's important that you encourage them to have conversations. Yeah. And I mean, you, you touched on breast uh, conservation in, yes. in, in, in breast in cancer. In fact, there are very few indications for a mastectomy other than inflammatory breast cancer, cancer throughout your breast. Obviously, if it's throughout your whole breast, then you would look at taking out all the tissue, something called pagets where you see change on the nipple. Okay. 
it's choice. So psychologically, a lot of women will say, I want to take out all my tissue on both sides. You need to explain to them that breast cancer doesn't jump from one breast to another. If it's going to spread, it goes elsewhere. So the choice is there. So most times we can do breast saving. If we do breast saving, we must have radiation treatment. Today, there's a subset of patients we can radiate in theater, so we're getting clever and clever at certain things. But the fact of the matter is people need time to make these decisions. They need to know what it's going to look like, what the outcomes, because it's very easy to say, I'm taking out your tissue and putting prosthesis in both sides. But then 30 years down the line, when you look like Donatella Versace and you're now 80 with like contracted leaking prosthesis, that's a problem. Absolutely. I also need for you to enlighten me on this uh, femininity reconstruction post-cancer. So we do it immediately. So there's very few indications for us to do delayed reconstruction today. We have a subset of patients we do immediate delays on the inflammatory cancers, but most, and even in my government setting, okay, we can reconstruct most people immediately and we try and breast save wherever possible, okay? Obviously, people are coming in with late cancers and have poor responses to chemotherapy and still big, ugly cancers involving the breast. Then obviously, we'll land up, sadly, then doing a mastectomy and then have an option for delayed reconstruction, which has to be a minimum of a year post-radiation. But there's very little opportunity today for a patient not to have that discussion with her doctor and a reconstructive surgeon prior to surgery. And we mustn't judge women who, if they don't want sure. to have reconstruction. And, and we mustn't forget that some women don't even want reconstruction. Yeah. And, and that's okay as well. You know, it's, uh, you, you don't need to, um, have these perfect boobs. No. In fact, you know what? Last time I checked under clothes, it's all heading south anyway. <laughs> I, I think I think a lot of pro- a lot of women have a problem. You know with what? That. Gravity hates women more than men, and food hates women more than men, Absolutely. and we must accept it. And lifestyle choices hates women sure. more than men. Oh wow, your sense of humour, <laughs> truly. It's fact. It's fact. I'm just waiting for the publication. Exactly. And it's not funny actually. When you're your age, it might be, but when you are age, it's not funny. It's not funny. <laughs> you're young. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so now, Trudy, tell me. How does uh, having a hysterectomy affect a woman? So it depends. Um, certainly a hysterectomy, um, obviously you don't have your periods. Uh, you can't reproduce. You can't have children of your own. But uh, remember, you can always harvest eggs and somebody else can have your baby for you. But from an intercourse perspective, from a sexual perspective, I think you need to appreciate what your libido was like before your hysterectomy, what your orgasmic function was like beforehand as well. And it's unlikely to change, except in cervical cancer, when we operate, we shorten the vagina. But the vagina, thank goodness, is quite a forgiving uh, organ and it can lengthen with time from intercourse. The unlike other, the penis. Unlike the penis. You know, the vagina certainly lengthens, but the consequences, unfortunately, of radiation on the vagina. So many women are afraid to have intercourse. And when you okay. um, have radiation to the cervix uh-huh. or the vagina and you are not having sex, then the vagina gets smaller, tighter, and okay. shorter. So it's really important to have that conversation with your patient, to encourage them to be sexually active, 
If they have no partner, I strongly encourage them to get themselves a vibrator. They might be shy about that. There are plenty of online shops if you don't want to walk into a shop. There are plenty of shops that are not dodgy on the corner for you to go and get a vibrator. But you need to have that conversation. And, you know, I I have this delightful elderly patient. And um, it's also important for us to examine the patient. We need to be able to look in the vagina. So, and I have the conversation and she's 80 and I say to her, listen, you know, I know your partner's, you know, you no longer have a partner. I'm not sure you want to find a new partner, but we really need to do something about keeping this vagina open. She says, oh my goodness, when I die and my family find the packet that contains the vibrator, I'm going to be cringing up there looking down. And I said, no, they'll be saying, thank God, mom got lucky, you know, she's got a vibrator at 80. So it's important to keep that vagina open. Radiation has consequences on vaginas. And I think, Trudy, what's important, there's no reason why any cancer patient, female patient, should have painful sex and intercourse. No. I, I, I honestly, it alarms me the lack of discussion that is had with patients around sexuality and things post-cancer treatment and how they feel that they just have to put up with painful sex or no sex. And it's quite safe in breast cancer patients to use vaginal estrogens, which work really, really well to re um I don't know. You know better than me. Yeah, the plump vagina, it up. yeah, to plump it up. Basically, the vagina is an organ that requires a certain amount of estrogen. And it, as you age, and even if you haven't had cancer as you age and you become menopausal, um, your vagina becomes thin and much drier and intercourse can become uncomfortable. And if it's uncomfortable, you're not going to want it. So there are ways that you can improve it. Gone are the days where you never had intercourse after you were, you know, a certain age. Now we want you to be sexually active and to enjoy your relationship. So yes, there are things you can do and what we do is we put estrogen in the vagina. Um, we put it in two times a week, sometimes three times a week and it's not going to affect your breast cancer. No. And luckily enough, most gynecological cancers are not hormone dependent. So we can utilize that in the vagina so that intercourse can become comfortable and enjoyable. And Carol, we yeah. hear horror stories about leaking silicone implants. Is that something that we're really still worrying about in so, 2018? So I think the new generation implants are, are really a cohesive gel, so they shouldn't leak. So generally the old things. And I just want to put something out there. Everyone goes, I've had saline, it's safe, not silicone. Saline is surrounded with silicone. Okay, so when they go, I'm allergic to silicone, therefore I had saline. You've still got silicone in, the outside is silicone. Um, anyone who's deciding to have a breast augmentation, I think, must have a short and long-term discussion around it. It's not a case of, oh, quick, I want Barbie boobs today. You have to look at long-term outcomes and also discussions around, and it's only a small risk, around we, we see implant-based lymphomas in a small subset of people. So it really goes back to what Trudy said. You know, surgery is an assault. It's not a case I'm going in, I'm having my face done, my boobs done, my tummy tucked this. You just must be aware of the short and long-term consequences of what you do. Um, I, I would actually like to encourage more women just to be more accepting of this is what my body is, okay? And I'm going to try and live as healthy as possible 
and accept and stop with this concept of um, it's all photoshopped anyway on the front page of the magazine. So really, what are we trying to teach our children? I have big issues of what we teach our girls. My daughter's quick to say my mom's a feminazi. It doesn't matter. But the fact of the matter is I don't see any little boys in the sandpit playing with Barbie, saying one day when I marry Barbie, all the girls want to do that. It's not what it's about. I say to them, they all want to find their handsome prince. Believe me, not one of us is a princess. I always say I'm... I'm married to Shrek, I'm Fiona, and I have three ogres. So we need to be sensible about how we look at our bodies, our health is important, and what we do to our bodies. Chemo and radiation. There's always fears about infertility. How can I, as a woman, plan for a family before the treatment and when diagnosed? I think, number one, you need to have that discussion with your practitioner. And, uh, you know, you don't have to have your chemo tomorrow. And you don't have to have your radiation tomorrow. But you can't have it in a year's time. So those are discussions that you need to have. Some chemotherapeutic drugs are worse than others. Uh, You need to have a discussion with Carol. How long after my breast cancer treatment can I have a baby? That's also important. Um, Whether I need to save my eggs or whether I need to save my um, embryos. Embryos have a better um, take-home baby rate than an egg does by itself. So if there's a partner, have the discussion with the partner. So yes, very much a discussion you need to have with your surgeon, with your oncologist, and with your chemo and radiation therapist. And remember, again, we're a multidisciplinary team. We're yeah. a unit. We try not to these days treat patients in isolation. Yeah. I, Trudy Smith, do not treat the person without discussion with yeah. Carol, without yeah. in what we call a multidisciplinary meeting. So I think there's almost no breast cancer that requires you to start your chemo treatment without the discussion around fertility saving eggs, saving ovaries. And if you can't do that, what we can even do is we can use an injection that we give you in your tummy to try and almost switch your ovaries off while we give your chemo in a hope that they work again when you finish your treatment. Post-treatment, again, we generally say, wait six months or a year, but it's choice before you want to try and fall pregnant and have um, children. Okay, And there is no data to show that having a child after breast cancer increases the chance of cancer coming back. Okay. So again, it's the issue of what if it does and what if it's this, but what if the husband is involved in a car accident, you know, really? And I've got some beautiful patients that were diagnosed with cervical cancer while they were pregnant, and we have given them chemotherapy during their pregnancy. And then we delivered a beautiful, uh, in one case, beautiful twins, in another patient, you know, a few others, singleton pregnancies, and then we've managed their cervical cancer. So you don't you know, it's, it's a discussion. I've had an ovarian cancer patient that was diagnosed when she was six weeks pregnant and we managed to do surgery, remove her ovaries, her omentum. She's got a beautiful little boy. She still has her uterus. And if we needed, we could use donor eggs and her husband's sperm and give her another baby. And we see, um, and I think what's important is breast cancer in pregnancy is the commonest cancer we see. So we see moms who are pregnant with breast cancer, there's no data to show show termination of 
any value at all. In fact, they do worse. We can give them chemo and we can do their surgery in the pregnancy and safely deliver babies. Absolutely. And I mean, talking about pregnancy, can uh, estrogen sensitive cancers worsen and become aggressive during no. a, a pregnancy and thus placing mum at risk? No data. No. No data whatsoever. No. So to, to then say to this poor woman who was excited and, you know, was happy to have a family that you need to terminate the pregnancy they is do worse. not true. So now, what resources are available for people to access that you would recommend? So I think it's it's a case of different resources for different scenarios. So I think if people want to resource, they need to do it in conjunction with their multidisciplinary team. So I always say to my kids, be careful what you put in your head. So in other words, if you have a low-grade hormone-sensitive breast cancer, for me to give you resources on chemotherapies for triple-negative breast cancers and this and that is really silly and pointless, and all you're doing, you're filling your head with unnecessary. Okay. So for each person who goes through their cancer diagnosis, have an option and a discussion with your team so that they can advise you in terms of what to do. A fascinating thing, the amount of ladies I get who don't want to take their tamoxifen because they're scared that they're getting that, what's their ovarian cancer or cervical, okay, the, which is actually a risk of uterine cancer, it's incredibly low. It is insanely low, and all they need to do is see their gynae once a year. So the concept is, I think, resource must be based according to diagnosis. So it's pointless to resource something that is not even part of what your treatment regime is. And the other thing is remember that you are not like everybody else. Yes. So, um, you know, patients say, I don't want chemotherapy because, you know, I saw my neighbor yes. Pete really stra- struggle. And I said, but Pete didn't have a uterine cancer. Yes. Pete doesn't have a uterine cancer. Each person's cancer is different. Each person's cancer is a different experience and each person's cancer is treat. There's no recipe, as Carol says. We do not have a recipe that fits all. We don't make muffins every day for the same person. So your recipe is peculiar to you and that's why the resource needs to be particular to you. Yeah. Trudy, Carol, Thank you so much for empowering the women out there in sharing your passion and expertise with us today. We've been talking all about cancers that affect women. To listen to all the episodes in our 10-part oncology podcast series, go to discovery.co.za forward slash corporate forward slash podcasts. In our next episode, we will explore the theme of cancers in children with key insights from two pediatric oncologists, an education expert from CHOC, Childhood Cancer Foundation, as well as a very brave mom of two young daughters diagnosed with cancer, all brought to you by Discovery. This is cliffcentral.com.